And welcome to another episode of the Ferguson Response Network podcast, a podcast devoted to supporting people working to create lasting social change through sustained civil disobedience and civic action. I'm Leslie Mack, and I'm joined, as always, by my awesome co-host, Ricky L. Hines II. What's going on, Ricky? Uh, nothing much. This is going to be an interesting episode. It's going to be good. It's going to be a good one, I think. Um, for those who are unfamiliar, Ricky is a Los Angeles native U.S. Navy veteran, avid Googler, blogger, founder of the Americans United Again movement. He hosts two other podcasts, the Americans United Again podcast, and he also is a co-host of the AUA Hope podcast and, oh, oh your newest one, the Social Justice Bullies podcast. And uh, he's always with me every week to discuss everything. If you're looking for the show, you can find us on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Just search Ferguson Response Network or you go to our website, fergusonresponse.org. If you're looking for actions or events uh, within the Movement for Black Lives, you can also go to fergusonresponse.tumblr.com. You can also find our show on the Americans United Again app, which is available in your Google Play or on any Android device. Did I miss anything, Reggie? Uh, no, no. I got it all. Cool. We have some amazing guests. Uh, It's been a pretty eventful week for me, even though I was on vacation. Uh, Lots of stuff popped off. And so this this show kind of came together in response to um, some stuff that happened in the publishing world, children's literature publishing world. And um, so we're going to have a larger conversation about that. But let me introduce our guests first. We have um, Edith Campbell, who's a mother, librarian, educator, and quilter. She promotes literacy in many forms to teens. And she does this through her blog, Crazy Quilt Edie, and in her work as an educational librarian at Indiana State University in Terre Haute, Indiana. And she also serves as the Indiana State Ambassador for the United States Board on Books for Young People, Guidelines for Selecting Multicultural Materials Task Force of the Association for Library Services to Children, and on the WNDB Walter Award Committee. Um, She's also a past member of uh, YALSA's Best Fiction for Young Awards Selection Committee, and her research interests include geography and young adult literature, critical information literacy, and critical literacy with young adult literature. And she received her BA in economics from the University of Cincinnati and her MLS from Indiana University. Edith, thank you so much for coming to the show. And hopefully I can call you Edie on the show. Yes, is that right? Katie is fine, and thank you for having me. Thank you so much. We also have Allison Kreiner-Brown, who is an Associate Director for Teaching for Change, whose work has been recognized by Education Week Think Progress and Shelf Awareness in the U.S. Department of Education. A former middle school teacher, she's driven by her experiences in schools and working for community organizations that focus on education, youth development, and social justice. She holds a master's degree in public administration and lives with her daughter and husband in the Washington, D.C. area. Allison, welcome. Welcome to the show. 
My pleasure. So glad to have you here. We have my sis, Ronnie Dean Burren. She is a 13-year public educator who's currently pursuing her PhD in education. She has a passion for reading and literacy, and this recently morphed into her actively pursuing accuracy in both textbooks and children's books. And welcome to the show, Ronnie. Hi! <laughs> so good to have you on. And finally, least, last but certainly not least, we have Mickey Kendall, uh, who is a writer, mom, co-creator of HoodFeminism.com, and you may know her uh, on these Twitter streets as Carnethia. Hi, Mickey. Nice to have you on the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. So glad to have all of you here for this amazing discussion. Ricky and I had a few short uh, kind of general stuff to talk about uh, news-wise. It's obviously, this was MLK weekend, and Reclaim MLK kind of took over um, the streets and, and uh, certainly was trending on Twitter as well on, on Saturday and again on Monday. Uh, Ricky, what was did what was going on in L.A.? Was anything going on there? I know the Bay Area had uh, the big shutdown of the Bay, Bay Area Bridge. Um, the Bay, yeah, the Bay Area did have the, the big shutdown. Um, nothing major as far as L.A. is concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just it was it was refreshing to see and it was it not just the actions but the responses to the actions because Mm. honestly it just reminded me like why we do what we do Mm -hmm. (laughs) you can see some why are they blocking traffic really really you have to ask that question (laughs) why why are people on blocking traffic on martin luther king day yeah the guy famous for blocking traffic really that That guy guy. okay okay. (laughs) All right. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, it was great. So I mentioned uh, the Bay Area had the 96 hours, and you guys can check this out on hashtag, hashtag 96 hours um, on the Bay Area Bridge. Um, uh, in Chicago, they had Build Black Futures with um, BYP 100, which was amazing. Actually, they took over the credit union of the police department, um, physically took over the space there, which was really amazing to see. And then um, there was a huge kind of star-studded uh, MLK Now that was put on, um, hosted by Ryan Coogler in New York City. Um at Riverside Church, which I watched on live stream, but was really impressive. Just all of these amazing people uh, reading um, pieces and, and writings from people in, in our historical past, not just MLK, although Octavia Butler, Octavia, Octavia Butler, huh? Octavia Spencer um, did read an MLK speech, but um, it was really amazing. Just music and um, spoken word and these amazing actors sharing these amazing pieces from people like Ida B. Wells and James Baldwin and I mean it was really something and Harry Belafonte finished things off which always makes any event better. Um, ladies what did you guys see? Was anything going on in your cities that you were aware of? I'm okay. Did it look different than it had in previous years? How about you Mickey? Um, <laughs> uh, so it was freezing. Mm. There were protesters out anyway. I applaud them. I like my toes. I couldn't <laughs> do it. Um, because Chicago was having one of those weekends where it looked around, it thought about it. It was like, let's be minus 15. Yeah. And See it was, how you can act with that. And it was a turn too. It was like nice Friday. And then like by Sunday, it was like, wait a second. Listen, Listen. Friday, it was like 30 something. Either Saturday or Sunday. I walked outside. I thought about it. I turned around, went right back in the house. It was like, <laughs> I just, I don't even, Instacart was my best friend that weekend. So. I hung out and on Twitter and retweeted um, what was happening in cities where the sun actually worked and um, did some impromptu history lessons about MLK because after a certain point, the Disneyfication of MLK Mm. starts to piss me off and then I start hitting people with facts. It's a a personality 
flaw. Sorry. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, and I think that was to me that was like a really good thing to see was this evolution of this concept of reclaim MLK, where the concept was batted about last year, but this year I really felt like people felt felt the need to really check some folks when they got a little out of pocket. Uh, Ronnie, how about you? Any any happenings in your household? I know you have lots of uh, children there to to teach and to teach us, of course, because your son's always dropping those. Yeah, <laughs> he's always dropping knowledge on us yep. around here. You know, our city is notorious for having uh, two MLK parades, <laughs> which people fight about and have been fighting about for years. Um, so it's always interesting every year because people are always upset that there are two parades because it's like you have to choose one, right? Mm. So which MLK parade are you going to? Uh, but the cool thing was that I've been asked to be on a committee for my county, Brazoria County, which has traditionally been very, 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 very red. Uh, but it is also trending very, very blue. And so we've already gotten the clearance from the city to host an MLK parade here in Brazoria County, which will make us, our city have three parades, but okay, fine, whatever. Um, <laughs> but it's an important factor for this county because it is very, very red. And so to have that sort of presence, uh, to be able to do that for 2017, I'm pretty stoked about that. So that's about it. That's awesome. Uh, Edie, how about you? What was happening in your world for for this weekend? Um, It was freezing cold in Terre Haute this weekend. Um, The campus typically has their Martin Luther King dinner on uh, Friday, and there's volunteer work going on on Monday, but it was very cold. I was home (laughs) on on the day, and... uh, very little celebrating or observing, unfortunately. It was just too cold to go out. I hear you. I mean, this weather is no joke. This winter has been insane. And I know those of you on the East Coast are about to get hit or in the midst of getting hit, I think. So, Allison, how's, how's, how is life uh, in D.C. and how bad is it? I've, I mean, I've been seeing all sorts of reports about it. So, if you're home right now. <laughs> yes, I'm home and I will probably be here for the next four days or so. <laughs> and um, I can give my quick report out on uh, MLK, Reclaim MLK. So um, I spent Saturday at uh, Saturday evening at the Black Lives Matter DMV, that's D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, for the D.C. metro area, um, held in action at um, a really uh, significant government building. It's named after Marion Barry. Um, or excuse me, the, the Reed Center uh, in downtown D.C. that was uh, inaugurated by Marion Barry, uh, calling for the D.C. mayor to go. And if you know D.C., D.C. has its own uh, music form, uh, go-go music. Mm-hmm. So the action was hashtag Muriel, that's our major, Mir- our mayor, Muriel has to go-go. Nice. So, um, yeah, and so they projected onto the building, um, particularly, uh, and they partner with uh, BYP 100, so it was really nice to see um, all the young people. I'm pretty young, but they make me feel not quite so young. But, uh, I mean, they, they really came out with the signage and um, showed some of the actions that they've been doing and uh, were really speaking out against the mayor's response to uh, recent spikes and um, murders in D.C. with increasing the police force. Uh, and presence and also not defending affordable housing and that's really what we need in this area so you know it was a pleasure for me to finally get out I have a two year old so I don't make it to as many things as I want to but I was happy to do that and I will probably be spending the next four days with that same two year old um, as we wait for the snow uh, we should get here Friday evening so 
we're um, just going to be hanging out. We've got our food. We're ready to go. Nice, nice. Um, yeah, so I, I people can go to reclaimmlk.com to look at some more background on kind of the the framing for the um, events of the weekend. But on Saturday, there were a lot of events that were focused on divesting from structures that are harmful to black folks. And then Monday had a lot of actions um, in investing into things that support us as black people. So it was really moving to see all that happening. And I had been on, we had a bunch of organizing calls for like eight weeks prior to MLK day, just kind of talking through these things and setting up communications teams and things like that. So it was really cool to see all of it uh, coming to fruition and lots of amazing actions all over the country. And um, I think this year is going to be really interesting. And I think this was a good, good start in terms of some creative ways people were um, challenging systems and status quo and also building community together. So I'm excited for what's coming up next. Speaking of which, um, for those of us that went to the uh, Movement for Black Guys convening in Cleveland this summer, uh, one of the pieces that that happened to create the convening was a policy table that is made up of uh, leaders from about just about every organization in the movement that you can think of. And so they've been meeting um, for hmm, over a year now, kind of talking through some different things. And um, also part of this this weekend was an announcement from the policy table that is um, inviting individuals and organizations to join the policy table and a collective of united organizations from across the country to imagine, create and implement a national policy agenda. Um and uh, over the next six months, they're going to work together with those of us that, that join them uh, to create a policy platform. And I'm going to go through a couple of these things that ensures an end to the wars on black people, um, an end to state-sponsored violence against black communities. That's number one. Number two, a world where our communities control the laws, institutions, and policies that are meant to serve us from our schools to our local budgets, economies, police departments, and our land while recognizing that the rights and histories of our indigenous family must also be recognized and respected we demand ownership and a reconfiguration of the economy, not merely access. Number three, political power and self-determination. Number four, a government that invests in the health and safety of our communities instead of police and prisons. We want investments in our communities determined by our communities and divestment from exploitative forces, including prisons, fossil fuels, police, surveillance, and multinational corporations. Number five, the continued building of community structures, institutions, and systems that protect our people and celebrate our lives, culture, and communities. And number six, reparations for past and continuing harms. We seek a commitment from the government and responsible corporations to repair the harm inflicted from slavery through mass incarceration on our people. We invite all of those interested in joining us and imagining creating and implementing a national policy agenda. The agenda will articulate our collective vision for freedom. And if you're interested, I will have the link in the show notes for you guys to join. Um, but I think it's a really good opportunity for folks to come together and it's kind of the fruit, it's kind of the culmination of the work that was started at the convening and I'm excited to see it taking shape. Ooh, that was a lot. All right. Yeah. Ricky, did you have something to add here before I... Um, yeah, I kind of want to... Because they point to something that before they name the policy yeah. uh, solutions. Um, that's really important, and I think that it's important for people to remember, mm. where it says, you know, we recognize and we and acknowledge that not all of our collective needs and vision can be translated into policy. Yeah. But we also understand that policy change is one of many t ne uh, tactics necessary to move us towards the world we envision. Um, that that's you know, policy is the policy is the tourniquet on a on a bleeding limb. 
it'll get it'll solve the fucking problem immediately. You know, it'll help, but it's never intended to be something permanent. Policy, you know, because if you look at it now, most policies. Or most of the the acts of racism that we see in America, when you talk about police brutality, when you talk about economic exploitation, um, there are laws in place to stop this shit. The will of the people who enforce the laws is not to stop it. You know, <laughs> that needs to change. Whether it's removing those people from power or forcing them to change how they how they use their power, or both. You know. We have there has to be a long term solution, and this is this is great because a short term solution for a nation or a society is fucking thirty years. It's a generation. Um, this is th- these these types of platforms and these um policy pla- or policy suggestions would help over the next generation, two generations. Um. But at the end of the day, white people have to stop being racist too. <laughs> like <laughs> racist, you know, racism is not our burden. Racism, the the effects of racism is. Yeah, I think that the you're right in the framing of that, and you know, we have this conversation on the show all the time about reform versus abolition and all those kinds of things. And I tend to be more on the radical side, but I also concede that you know, if there's you know a hundred steps to get to abolition the first 50 of them are pretty close to what reform looks like so i we have a ways to go before we have to split those particular hairs and lots to do and lots of triage that needs to happen and lots of tourniquets to put on because you know we have uh you know things like flint happening and we have uh you know children dying and we have you know people being killed and no one being held accountable for it and we have economic strife in our communities and so many other things that we we need to deal with immediately but i do think that this is a good step to getting a lot of people at the table to have these conversations which is going to be messy and beautiful and black so i like all of those things about it um ladies before we move on to to the rest of the convo did you have anything that you wanted to say about any of the other stuff we just mentioned floor is open um i was just going to say i think it, that i I feel like policy change is basically all we can expect right now Mm. to see happen. Not because I think it's super effective, but because I've noticed across, I'm a historian by training, I've noticed across time that it's like policy change, tragedy, pushback, tragedy, pushback, policy, enforcement. Mm. Right? Mm. So, unfortunately, we are 150 years or so post-slavery, really only 50 years post-Jim Crow being the law of the land, not really, truly Jim Crow got some new shoes, some new suit. So I think that that's part of the problem is that everyone is looking around and we keep hearing that it'll change, it'll change, it'll change, but we ignore the context that we've got 400 years to overcome and you're not going to do that in 40. Right. Good point. Definitely true. Yeah, I mean, it, it. Like I said, I do think it's it's where we have to be right now. But hopefully, through those discussions, we can start. I mean, I have a lot of I have a lot of faith in the next generation as well. I really believe a lot in our youth, and 
the ones even younger than what I consider youth or even more astounding to see how woke they are and how engaged they are with all of these topics way more than I ever was. So I'm excited for all of those things. Uh, but we are gathered here tonight, not to sound like I'm doing a sermon, but we are gathered here to discuss, um, what I had hashtag called slavery with a smile, but we, we really want to talk about the depictions of slavery in, uh, children's literature and in literature generally speaking and how um, the effects that that has and and we have some general context for what occurred I mean it was very quick over the last like not even a week I think that that a lot of this stuff went down um, and then some larger context for that and have a good conversation about um, about the topic generally speaking not just specifically about these one or two books that I'm going to mention first up so for those that don't know uh, last year a book called a fine dessert was um, was released and uh, it features four uh, different stories uh, telling the making of a dessert called Blackberry Fool. One of these stories features a slave and um, her daughter making the treat for the master's house and features some smiling faces and they get to lick the back of the spoon. And this was met with lots of conversations, lots of, um, I would say, uh, challenging this narrative of slavery with a smile. I'm going to let um, my friend uh, DJ Older, Daniel Jose Older, who's a great author, um, just talk for a second about us. He actually was on a panel with the author of the book um, and kind of talked a little bit about the issues related to this kind of narrative. So we'll let uh, DJ talk for one sec. I'm going to say, I'm going to talk about uh, a fine dessert. I want it to be clear that this is my personal attack. I'm a I'm a big fan of your work, especially now that I've seen the subway piece, which I've been admiring for years. I love it. Um, and I believe, especially now having met you, but I certainly believe, and I always have from your comments, that uh, you came from a very genuine place uh, writing this book, uh, drawing the pictures for this book. That was mm-hmm. never in doubt for me. Mm-hmm. And, yes. And, and I always, I tell my students that we have to try knowing that we're going to fail, and I believe in that. Um, and... As writers and artists, our intentions become irrelevant once we put our work out into the world. And uh, a book is a creation of a village, uh, just like people are. And so it's really about the whole community of Kidlet that needs to be having this conversation and is having this conversation um, that we need to address. I don't think it's just about your drawings as much as it is. It is about your drawings. It's also about how they're received and you know who decided to publish them and all these different ways that we talk about them. Um, I was My reaction to the book was visceral and um, painful. Um, slavery is an open wound in America because we have been lying to ourselves about it forever um, and we continue to today. And I think you really didn't want to continue that lie um, and I think the book does. Uh, and you've asked people to read the full book and look at the context of it and I, and I and I know that you know you put in the serious faces at the last panel of that sequence um, with the idea of, of bringing some of the drama of slavery to light and the tragedy of it uh, for me that didn't do it at all I think when we show uh, enslaved uh, children doing slave work with a smile it takes a lot more than a frown later on to really contextualize it properly uh, for me the context of this book is 
the wildly undiverse uh, children's book publishing world. It's the uh, ongoing cycle of violence against children of color that is committed uh, by the state. You know, it is that the Confederate flag uh, still flies until there's a massacre to bring it down. It is that we are still fighting the Civil War uh, in many, many ways, and we're still dealing with the fallout of slavery in many ways. Um, people of color don't have the luxury of being able to sugarcoat history to our children. And when we do, uh, people die. And that's one of the really important pieces about this, that uh, we are traumatized, and it is an ongoing uh, state of emergency for people of color in America today. And children's books need to speak to that without trying to provide umbrellas or make it sound like everything's okay, because it's not. Uh, the role of literature is to tell us the difficult truths, um, which, again, I believe you tried to do. Um, but to arm us uh, for the world in all of its ugliness. And that's not an easy thing to do. In a okay, so I just wanted to give a little context for, for the fine dessert conversation. Um, were you guys aware of that book and kind of what I'm sure um, Edie, you and Allison and probably Mickey and Ronnie as well were aware of it. But um, Edie, did you have any comments on kind of what, what happened in the in the literature and publishing and, and all of that kind of world with regard to that book. Obviously, it's still on the shelves. You can buy it right now. So it wasn't quite as, as big a response as we got um, for the, the other book that we're going to talk about shortly. But I was aware of that when I did a, a critical review of that one, looking mainly at the images um, that were drawn in that book, because a lot of the controversy came up thinking that it might be eligible for a major award in children's literature. Mm -hmm. And and when you look at the story, um, and, you know, it's, it's one of those repetitive stories where um, every decade the same thing happens. You know, you get the beating of the blackberry fool and served to the table. And when you bring in the 18, uh, 1810s and you have an enslaved um, mother and daughter picking the blackberries as opposed to the white mother and daughter um, in the 1710s, you have them dressed exactly the same. Mm. You show no difference for enslaved people. And there was a huge difference. And and not seeing those differences and then seeing them, um, there, there's one image where the mother and the daughter slip into a huge cupboard to hide and eat the um, the blackberry fool. And a child seeing that with no context about enslavement mm. would think, wow, that, that looks like fun to hide with your mom. And it's such a degrading image that a grown woman has to hide with her child to eat this dessert. And, and if you know the full context, you understand um, how dangerous that situation really was. Mm. But in the story, it's, it's just not portrayed well at all. Mm. Absolutely. Um, Allison, how about you? Sure. So with a fine dessert, um, there are many great critiques that came out about that, um, but we were certainly closely following Teaching for Change, um, critically reviews, children's books. So, you know, all I'll just add briefly is um, when you look at the segment of that book where is the slave, the enslaved mother and her daughter, it really does feed into this, this neo-Confederate um, looking back at history and the time of the enslavement of African Americans and romanticizing it. Mm. And I think the danger, a particular danger for that now, is it slavery is, is more than a well-established fact of, of history that Africans 
and black people in this country were enslaved. Um, but to normalize this idea of black people being subservient and others, that is what is pushing against, um, that those notions are what's pushing against, you know, you read off earlier, Leslie, in your call from the Black Lives Matter movement for reparations. Yep. And, you know, one of the reasons that people are pushing against reparations is this idea that, you know, it wasn't that bad or that that was the rightful place of black and African people at that time. And so that, to me, is one of the dangers of a book like that and also um, a book like uh, we're going to discuss is, uh, is both the romanticization, um, it was normal at the time for black people to be enslaved. And yes, they would have had to sneak to get away with things. Um, and, you know, what's behind those smiles, you know, I get reminded of uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar's We Wear the Mask, mm. you know, friends and lies. And so the, the complexity that would have been behind, you know, those smiles, the, the utter degradation um, that comes from a woman having to eat in a cupboard with her child, it does not get conveyed in that book, and it, it's just not done justice. So that's, that's what I'll add about um, the fine dessert. Thank you so much for that context. And I, I like I said, I, I don't want to spend too much time on a fine dessert, but it, but for me it was important to give some context to it because um, my knowledge, I had spoken about it on this show. I spoke about it on my other podcast with my husband, um, and I spoke at length with um, DJ about it. It was really on my radar. I had read a bunch of stuff about it and had tweeted about it and talked about it. And so when um, I saw A Birthday Cake for George Washington get published, my first visceral reaction was, I can't believe this is happening again. Like I, I felt like the conversations that I saw being had in conjunction with a fine dessert were pretty robust, um, despite it being up for, um, the, the award nomination. And, and, you know, I would say initially being, um, critically praised and then once the critique came I you know you saw people kind of changing their their narrative about what they felt about the book but I really felt like it was a good um amount of coverage and focus on the larger issue of depicting slavery in children's literature and how that can can be done so poorly in in this way of slavery with a smile. So when I saw um, A Birthday Cake for George Washington being published by Scholastic, I, I, I just... I, I just, it felt like deja vu and it felt like I don't even know how this could, could happen so soon after we have just been having these really in-depth conversations about a fine dessert. Now, obviously, there's a long cycle for publishing, so it's not as though um, A Birthday Cake was written after, um, that much after a fi- the fine dessert um, situation occurred, but I still just couldn't understand, especially, you know, when you read the actual description of the book that describes um, George Washington's servants, you know, just all of these things that were just so glaringly, um, obviously incongruent with any message we'd want to be sending to our children. Um, Ronnie, talk to me a little about how you first heard about the book and kind of what, what your take was when you first heard about it and, and all of that. Yeah, I, um, I initially heard about the book. Someone tagged me. I'm in a, a progressive Christianity group and someone tagged me and said, okay, Ronnie, you know, you're the textbook lady. So <laughs> <laughs> have you seen this? And that actually shared a post from Teaching for Change. So I went to the post and I looked at it and I was like, you're kidding, right? Like, no, (laughs) like not for real, for real, right? 
Um, and then immediately that night I went on my, I did a Facebook live feed and I sort of talked about it and talked about that, you know, the portrayal of the slaves in the book was that they were happy and just how absolutely damaging that narrative was. Right. And just how, you know, we can't keep telling these. I mean, we just had this conversation in October in talking about the McGraw-Hill textbook and calling slaves workers. Like we just had this robust conversation about, how how much language matters, how damaging that is to tell the story that way. And and like someone said, you know, I think maybe Edie said, you know, normalizing, you know, uh, a slavery and, and black people in these sort of subservient roles and then making it not so bad, right? It's like, well, you know, and, and my favorite is people who say, well, we can't judge, you know, the people of our past. It was their time. Oh, yes, we can. Oh, yes, we can. I bet you I can. I bet you I am. So it just was, it was absolutely, literally outlandish. Like I kept looking at it and going, is this real? And of course I invited my son to look at it and he was just like, mommy, people just go too far. <laughs> Those were sort of his words. And mm. so that, that was just, you know, yeah, shocking, shocking. Yeah, it was. Mickey, how about you? When did you first hear about it and kind of what were your first thoughts, especially as a writer? Um, so I actually wound up quoted in some articles because I said something a little bit pithy about both books, mm. about the candy-coated images of slavery mm. and how we frame these things as somehow adding diversity mm. to children's lit. Yeah. You know, it, it's a comment about the, the writers and their focus. If their way of adding more color to to the canon is to portray people of color as victims or villains, but not to show, you know, free lacks at the time, um, <laughs> to position the black people in a different time frame. Mm. If you weren't going to actually address slavery, it gets really bizarre when you get into the George Washington book because she is a historian, but she decides to leave out of the text. The children will actually engage with right. the fact that he goes on to escape. Right. On his birthday, which is a big con contention for me because I feel like she, she, the, the positioning and, and one of the other things that really rubbed me wrong was this preemptive post by the editor of the book, um, that seemed to want to, you know, squash any, um, dissent or any critique before, uh, anything right. got started, which really irked me because I was just like, well, I, I think they knew. I think that by the, this point, the book has been greenlit. They've already gone down the well, but they know that they're going to catch this criticism. So they encourage everyone to read, and, and we inc included this note, so don't think we're hiding it, but we all know by you not putting it on the page and not representing it to the children, all they see is smiling George Washington, the hero of, you know, American history, right. blah, 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 without the rest of the context. And one of the things that has continually been brought up and is sort of ignored is that then when we get into conversations about why children of color don't read, we don't talk about their options mm. in kids lit. If the only way you can see yourself in the book is as someone who's enslaved, as a sidekick, all of these things, reading isn't a pleasure for you. Mm. Reading isn't something you enjoy. You're never the hero. You're never the star. We act like the audience for these books is pro forma, white kids, middle class, blah, blah, blah. And I've had that conversation. And then I point out, well, population wise, A, we already know that's not true. B, you can't in one breath say you're here for all children and then say, oh, but we were really focused on these kids over here 
who we don't need to address any of the erroneous things we're teaching them that they'll have to unlearn later anyway. Mm-hmm. I really, uh, and I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. Go ahead. Go, <laughs> I was going to say, it somehow becomes about kids being too sensitive to no facts, but we don't give other horrors that same kind of treatment. You would not see a smiling Holocaust victim book. And no. if you do, please don't tell me because I might, I might catch a case. <laughs> I hear you. But, you know, um, generally we have the sense not to do this thing. Mm-hmm. But it comes to slavery, it comes to Native Americans, it comes to people America has harmed, and either we pretend it didn't happen, with, like, Japanese internment, or, like, slavery, we slap some candy on it, on the imagery and say it wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was going to chime in on that, and, and especially talking about why, why you know, the, the problem with, or we see the reading achievement gap uh, with black children, right? And one of the, part of that is in my research area is talking about books where black boys and black girls see themselves as heroes and they see themselves as, you know, the star of the show, you know, center stage instead of the sidekick, instead of the person who, you know, the, 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 not the main character, just a friend in the story. Right. And so, and, and that's tough. And, and it's even more of a struggle for, for black boys because, in general, boys, young boys as readers, they don't, they, and I talked to some boys today in a school, we don't want to read girl books. So that's already a struggle for them if there's a, a female or a girl as a, as a lead character, right? But if you're a black boy and the lead character is a white girl, like, it's just not happening for them. And then they wonder, well, why don't black boys like to read? Why, is this, why do we see this reading achievement gap? Well, guess what? The stories you keep putting in front of them they're, you know, they don't ever show them as, as powerful and strong and smart and, and, and cunning and none of that. You know, it's always a sidekick and, and, and that's, that's why that is so damaging. And like you said, and, I, and I've said that same thing, we don't ever hear about stories that, well, there were some families in, in concentration camps who were happy because at least they were together. No one ever says that. And they shouldn't, right? Because it's okay for us to say, oh, the Germans were evil. Nazi Germany was horrible. They were terrible people. Now, we in America, we were just trying to find a new land. Mm. We didn't really need to give those Native Americans those smallpox blankets. We didn't really need to put those Japanese people in that internment camp. We, we didn't really mean to enslave black people. It, that's not really what happened. We weren't evil. We were just trying to start something new. No, man. No, no, no. Not mm. that. And so it just... Like you said, it, it, those things, they just, it's why the narrative is so problematic because it makes us, you know, look back and say, we weren't that bad. And, and, you know, we, you know, so many Americans are in love with this idea of American exceptionalism, right? And that we're so much better than everybody in the world, right? Um, and so in order to keep that lie going, in order to continue to tell ourselves that story, we have to, or they have to put candy, like you said, let's take slavery and dip it in caramel. Like mm. that's literally what they have to do yeah. in order to keep that story going. Absolutely. So obviously in the, timeline of everything that happened i know um edie you had an, a great review of the book I, I loved your review because it broke down both the narrative of the story and also the illustrations because i think um there were problems with both significant problems with both so i, I love that you really took took it to the place of kind of breaking down both of both of those sides of the issues with the book um and I, I actually have the book. I, I, I have it on my Kindle. I'm one of the few that got it. So I do have it and I've read it in, in its entirety. Um, and I 
That is some self-sacrifice. It is. It was tough. <laughs> let me tell you. That 11 bucks was hard to spend. But um, I wanted to actually have a good context for it because I wanted to be able to, you know, just really understand fully the, this bullshit that they were trying to pass off as, as uh, quality literature for our children. Um, and so I, unlike uh, the backlash that happened with A Fine Dessert, uh, Scholastic, uh, just a few days after um, most of these pieces started being run, um, elected to pull the book off shelves and, and offer a refund for those who did purchase it for returns, which was interesting unexpected uh, i'll say allison were you surprised by this did you expect it i mean i was surprised i was really shocked that it happened so quickly so i'll, I'll ask you what your thoughts were on that so um yeah this is Allison with pieces for change so i you know gosh to, to see it actually pulled um so i don't live in the, the children's lit world um you know, I have the benefit of working with Teaching for Change, and we have people who do. So I get a lot of these side um, conversations, and then I tend to come in with something really perked up. So I actually uh, came into this because of Edith's review, which was, you know, fantastic, and really started a conversation online. And I would be absolutely remiss if I did not give a nod to uh, Debbie Reese at American Indian in Children's Literature, um, for her blog, Deborah Mancart at Teaching for Change, um, also also author uh, Zeta Elliott, um, who were part of this conversation, and Edith's review really helped to start to frame some of the critical critique, critiques around it. Um, and so I said, no, this this can't be serious. Like, no, this, this is no way. And I think literally the next day, the book had arrived at our office, and so my first review was F this ish. Um, that was actually my first review. And then people <laughs> asked, well, first, a longer review. And, um, and so, and I didn't actually have time to write one, but I read the responses that came from Scholastic and from the author. And that's actually what spurred me to respond. And so I, I referenced Edith's, uh, review, um, and uh, Leslie, yours. And, and I can't thank you enough for the, um, that slavery with a hashtag, uh, slavery with a small hashtag. I mean, and that was really a critical piece, and I think the pressure of, you know, both they, they certainly didn't want to public think, um, but also I think that there were a number of voices who really could really speak back to their defense of the book, and it was just absolutely so negligent. And one of the reasons it was negligent, um, I want to acknowledge someone else who's been tweeting, not with the, the slavery with a smile hashtag, um, but I want to encourage everyone to uh, just look up. Her name is Atina Educator yeah. uh, on Twitter, and she's an early childhood educator. And she actually did a breakdown of why this is uh, emotional violence against young black children, and it actually it also does a disservice to young children who are non-black. Um, so if you head over to teachingforchange.org, this is not just a shameless plug. We are actually compiling um, some of the tweets. Um, articles, other writings from early childhood educators about why this book is actually dangerous for young children and inappropriate. And Scholastic acknowledged that in their their uh, tepid response to why they were recalling the book. Um, I, I thought they had no choice. Mm. They absolutely had no choice with this book. Um, a birthday cake for George Washington is in a different league than a fine dessert. Yeah. A fine dessert is, is a really bad slap on the wrist. This should not be done again possibly teachable moment. A fine dessert, uh, or excuse me, 
uh, a birthday cake for George Washington should have rightly been pulled from the shelves. Yeah. So that did not surprise me. Should have never made me. it to the shelves. Right. It should have never made it to the shelves. From the historical context, you know, in my response to them, I really question because, as was mentioned before, they took a lot of historical uh, liberties, which people tend to do in writing books. Um, but, you know, the fact that Hercules escaped, you know, the same man who was smiling, you know, why did he escape? Because his son, you know, was uh, was alleged uh, or was, was accused of stealing. And, you know, so they were sent back to the Mount Vernon estate. And that was something that for an enslaved person was always a reality. Right. So maybe he was smiling about his prior for the case, but you cannot tell the story and not provide this additional context. And mm-hmm. I think they, they responded as they should have to a book that should not have been published in the first place. We're still scratching our heads about that. Um, but I think that they had no choice. I don't have any commendations for Scholastic for doing it. Uh, what should have been done. Mm. Ricky, what were you yeah. going to say? Um, I, like, I was going to try, I was going to try to read this book before <laughs> I got angry. But it didn't even take that long. Like, I literally, no. like, um, I, I saw the excerpt from the front flap and it reads basically, this story told in the voice of Delia, uh, Hercules' young daughter is based on real events and underscores the loving exchange between a very determined father and his eager daughter. Not too bad, right? Doesn't sound too bad. Who are, who are faced with an unspoken, bittersweet reality. Hmm. Motherfucker, bittersweet? <laughs> when was slavery ever bittersweet? <laughs> the, the paragraph before that's even more ridiculous. They said there's only one problem. They're out of sugar. And I'm like, that's the only problem? They're slaves, okay? <laughs> And their problem is the sugar. Like I, the the enti- only one. The entire the problem. The Have entire you based on this book? Have I seen what? I'm sorry to hear that. Comedy Central skit based on the book. Oh yes. Oh, I'm going to the internet as soon as it's finished. Oh, it's so good. It's on the nightly show. It's great. Uh, Somebody writes uh, a a companion piece, or I should say, a similar piece. It's called Massa Dies, and. It's fantastic. And spoiler alert, Massa dies. So that's mm-hmm. the long and the short of the book. Uh, but yeah, it, 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 they definitely took it, took it there. It was a really great commentary on how absurd this notion is of, you know, this baking a cake for, for George Washington. Um, so I, I wanted to have, I, I wanted to have Ronnie talk a little bit about the, as, as you so nicely put Alison Tepid, uh, final response from, from Scholastic because I, I found there, even in the action of pulling the book, I thought it was, well, I'll let Ronnie talk about it anyways. Ronnie, go ahead. Talk about, talk yeah, about that I, response. So, you know, of course, you know, I see the book and, and, you know, I made a video about it. And then I, I went on and saw the author's response with just, like, literally, I was already, like, on a scale from 1 to 10, 10 being, like, you know, fighting the air. You know, I was, like, on a 13. And then I read the author's response where it was kind of like, you know, I know it's hard to believe, but some slaves had a good life. I mean, it was like she was, so that just made me even more insane, mm-hmm. right? And then, of course, when they when they pull the book, you know, Leslie sent me a text. She's like, oh, my God, they pulled the book. And so I go read their response, which just put me, like, on 27, mm-hmm. um, because they said, this book may contain some uh, references to slavery that may confuse children. I'm like, <laughs> may? Are you, wait a minute, like, 
it, it was just so, you know, it was like they wanted to be out of the fight so quickly. Like, okay, okay, fine, we quit, we quit, we quit. But I'm like, you don't get to be, you know, irresponsible like this. You don't get to tell improper stories. I mean, you literally, and I love that phrasing, you don't get to sort of inflict this emotional, you know, damage on people and then say, okay, never mind, we're not going to sell it. No, uh-uh, but- absolutely not. Like, this needs to hurt more than that, you know? Um, and, and the example I used was when we were, you know, upset with the McGraw-Hill textbook. Originally, they were like, well, yeah, we'll reprint it, you know, in 10 years. And it was like, no, you're going to do it now. You know, it's, it's going to hurt right now. Like, you need to take all those books back right now at your expense, and it needs to hurt, right? And so that's sort of where, where I ended up at the end of it all once Scholastic was like, okay, we're not selling anymore. I'm like, no, you, no, uh-uh. Them book fairs don't need to be in our schools. How about that? Because I know that y'all's bread and butter, you know? Right. So that's sort of where we, we sort of ended, you know, or, or the, the I guess the second phase of it was like, you know, they don't just get to do this. And, and that's, the, that's what makes me crazy, like, people do and corporations do what they can because they think they can. And I guess on some level they can, but people have to start saying, no, you can't. Right. No, uh, you can't do that to us. We, yeah. we refuse to. And, and, and I think Leslie brought this up to me. We were maybe texting. She said, you know, we don't, we don't trust you anymore. Yeah. We don't trust you, Scholastic. Yeah. You, no. And, and like, like we all said, they knew this book was problematic. <laughs> So, okay, y'all, let's print this book, but also let's tell people we kind of know it's a problem, but that we've already discussed it and there are healthy discussions. No, mm-hmm. let's get our, you know, our big, you know, our, our, our beautiful black woman publisher. Let's get her to write a piece and put her picture with it. And that will make everybody feel better. No, 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 it won't. It's still not okay. Yeah. Still not okay. Yeah. And I, I, I too was really incensed by the author's um, response because there are a few things about it, just claiming the historical accuracy, but then putting it in the, in the sense of an amalgam of slaves that may have been happy, you know, and, and then she says this at the end, she, she talks about um, people talking about the fact that uh, a fine dessert was written by a white writer and birthday cake was written by a, a author of color. She says, this is reductive and divisive subterfuge that misses what should be the only point about legitimacy. If you do the deep research, ferret out the facts and are true to them, then you have literary authority. You have literary authority, regardless of color or ethnicity. When you write from your singular perspective or purely from imagination and pass it off as history, the authority is not yours. Mm. Mm. So I actually was not surprised about that response because she is by training a food historian. Oh, okay. Okay, hello, a culinary historian, yes. (laughs) Yeah, she is not by training a cultural, like, there's so many ways I could go off. Jesus, Mm. I have like four professors in the back of my brain screaming (laughs) right now to get out. And the problem is that I think she was so focused on the things she wanted to tell. And I also feel like that scholastic money got to sounding good to her Mm. that she decided, because I found it particularly interesting that she's not, although she is a woman of color, her history, her, her genetic history is not related to American slavery. Correct. Right. She's Trinidad. Correct. Correct. And, Although the, the the illustrator may in fact have that backstory, um, it's very clear that the writer wanted to tell this story and had kind of picked up the romanticized version. Oh well, they wore fine clothes and that meant they were happy. 
with George Washington yeah. on George Washington's plantation because yeah. let's let's backtrack for a second. This isn't even the Thomas Jefferson version, which is already hot ass garbage. Washington was actually known for being a relatively cruel slave owner yep. at the time. So happy where if you were such an expert on Washington beyond the food that was being consumed at the time and beyond the the whiskey and other things that he was making, you would then know that to argue in any way, shape or form that they were happy because they had finer clothes and uniforms and had a sense of pride, blah, 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 ignores a lot of historical and cultural context at the time because they could be punished for not being happy enough. And by punished, I mean whipped. Right. So fake smiles don't mean anything. Right. And this idea right. and this idea of, you know, the safety of the field of the house versus the field is really one of fallacy. Most rapes um happened in in the house. Um and and slaves were just on precarious ground and we see we know through history that hercules himself was stripped of those very clothes that she uses to lift up in historical context and sent back to the fields and all of those trappings that she chose to highlight in his story were were taken from him just a year after she claims this book was written so i i the whole the whole narrative just starts to crumble when she the original argument is that it's historically accurate and when you challenge that and say actually it's not historically accurate then it becomes well some slaves were happy nah that's that's not how we're gonna play this and so her entire like argument just doesn't doesn't stand up i think unfortunately that when we're writing for children we want to control that narrative and too often white publishing companies have control that narrative in a way that is detrimental to our children. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what has definitely happened with both of these books. It happens too often with books given to our children. Um, I've, I've been keeping numbers with Zeta Elliott for several years and seeing how few books are actually written by African-Americans for African-American children. And this past year in 2015, out of 5,000 books written for children over the age of eight, only 84 of those books were actually written by African-Americans. Would you say that one more time? 84 books out of 5,000 were written by African-Americans. In the next month, we're going to see some more figures coming out about um, uh, diversity in general, how few books are written by Latinos, Asian-Americans, Native Americans, and the numbers for Native Americans are just really horrible. But if if we're not telling our story, you know, we talked about why our, our, our children aren't reading. You know, we're made to think our children don't want to read. They're not finding themselves in the books. Mm-hmm. Who would want to right. read when, when you can't relate to what's put in front of you? And, and as far as Scholastic and, and how they handle this, I think if you look at it from a business perspective, if you look at it from that first release from Pinkney up through the um, taking that book off the market um, from the pullback of the book, I really honestly believe that that was pure marketing genius on their part. Mm. They controlled that narrative. Yep. Um, when they decided to pull the book, the press release was out there, and you can cha- trace their press release through the media. I really believe that when they 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 thought, okay, this is enough, let's pull the book. They knew when that happened, they had created a shortage of that book. 
that people grabbed that. They knew that people were going to grab it. That book disappeared quick. You couldn't find it anywhere. Mm. You could find it third hand for a little while from 50 to to $100. You can't find it anywhere now. Mm-hmm. It's off Scholastic's hands now. They're done with it. Right. They're on to the next product now. Yeah, for so, sure. I definitely Alex, agree with I, that. If I can jump in real quick. Yeah, go ahead, Ron. So yeah, so I love, particularly since this is a, a podcast for Black Lives Matter, I think, you know, there are two... Um, kind of organizing points that I that I pull from this or, or lessons related to organizing that you know I see from this. So one, I think that um, what was just said is exactly on point. That Scholastic recognized um, how they could play this to their advantage because their press release, you know, right before the 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 book, you know, we all found out that the book was pulled. The press releases were out and everywhere, and it cited Scholastic, mm-hmm. maybe one other store. Um, you know, but they put the juggernaut in motion. And so they controlled the narrative as much as they could. Um, and so that, that's a particular or- organizing point because the work of, you know, of Edith, of Leslie, of, of everyone who chimed in, um, who really spread the word on Facebook, you know, Teaching for Change, our post about the, um, about the, uh, of the book that shared, you know, more than 7,000 times. And that's just, you know, that multiplied on, on Twitter and other places. And they won't tell that story. Right. You know, they're going to come back and control the narrative, which is something we already know. That's one point. Um, and the second point is, you know, I really think, glad to speak honestly, I really think that Scholastic really used the author and the source there to, you know, for their purposes, which is, is nothing to really be surprised about. You had a culinary historian who wanted to write a story about, you know, the man who was considered to be the first celebrity chef in this country. And if you look at the author's response, but more importantly, the editor's response, what was shared from Scholastic, you know, they, they sort of kind of show their hand. They say that, you know, George Washington's birthday is something that's discussed in school. So one, that's a marketing point. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, the role of African Americans in celebrating George Washington's, and this is coming from Pinkney, um, George Washington's birthday is often not discussed. And so, you, you know, so one of the things that, you know, I did in my, my response to, um, you know, their, their defense is to say, well, Scholastic, you know, you're very clearly you're trying to double dip into the presidential and founding fathers category mm-hmm. and into the African American history multicultural category. So sort of from the get, I think they had, you know, someone in that publishing house very high up saw that they could use this story to their advantage. And really the way that it ended up being shaped, they weren't having the conversations that we're having. Mm-hmm. And so we have to continue to be the ones who push them and to push these conversations um, because it's not going to happen. And when they do feel that pushback, they're going to do their best to control the narrative. So, it, you know, children's literature is just another point where people of color have to continue to organize and have to continue to organize intersectionally. Mm. Yes, because we have been fighting this fight for a long time in children's literature. And one good thing that came out of this is that the fight of children's literature, parents, educators are now seeing what our children are up against when it comes to books, that they're just not there. And the things that do come out are often too questionable. You know, we're, we're looking at an institution of racism that we're trying to fight here and trying to change. And 
now that it's gotten bigger than it had been, perhaps that will happen. But no one even knew about this. It, it's People still didn't know about it until they saw Scholastic's version of what happened. There's so many who still don't know what so many did to make it happen. Mm. Yeah, I was, um, I was going to say, you know, with, <clears throat> you know, like you were saying, the, the parents, this is just yet another sort of wake up call, right? And, and parents really saying, really? Like these, <laughs> these are books that, that will be in front of our children. And, um, and I don't think they know that. Like, I don't think that, you know, as a general rule, you think your kids go to school and they read books and they learn to read. And some kids love to read and some kids don't. And my kid just doesn't love to read because he doesn't. Or my kid loves to read because he does or whatever. But it, these things have very real connections to who our black boys and black girls are turning out to be. Um, this this level of reading, the, the reading interest. I mean, when you look at um, reading interest inventories, I mean, every kid, every kid, every race of child wants to read books where they're, they're in those books. Um, last year, Soledad O'Brien came to the University of Houston to do uh, her black Black in America tour, like the college, the university version. And one thing she said, and I thought this was so you know, just profound. She said, growing up, I always knew that things that were in books were important. I knew that because if it was in a book, it was important. There were books in school, there were books in churches. I always knew things in books were important, but I never saw myself in books. So I just assumed I wasn't important. And I thought, oh my goodness, that that is a very real example of why it's so important for our kids to see themselves in books because they know they're important when they see that. They said, oh, look, and she said, I think Soledad's book was, uh, I think maybe when she read Bless Me Ultima. So when she read that book, she was like, wow, right? Uh, for me, it wasn't until I was in college and I read Your Blues Ain't Like Mine, and I thought, what? Like, are you kidding? Uh, and I love to read. I was a reader. Um, and so it's just, it's, so, it's why these stories are so terrible, you know. And the sad part is that the story of Hercules could have been told without praising Washington. The, the right. uh, and I tell you, uh, the enduring spirit mm -hmm. of black people in this country mm -hmm. is amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I wake up in the morning and I don't want to go and I don't want to do, I think about all the people that fought and died so I could have what I have, right? So the enduring spirit of who we are is profound, right? So she could have told this story about Hercules being a profound individual, being the first celebrity chef, fighting for his family, running away. Like, that story is beautiful. Right. You don't have to praise George Washington. Who cares? There's enough praise for Washington, right? I mean, I think we've gotten that. Okay, we praise Washington. Fine. There's enough praise for Washington. You didn't have to tell the story of Chef Hercules and praise Washington. Like, it, it was so like, if you are really a culinary historian and you're in love with the idea of culinary history, what a beautiful story to tell. The first celebrity chef is a black man. But you don't have to praise George Washington. I mean, it no. just, it was so just off base for me. Exactly. And again, mm -hmm. it, it's a great story of Chef mm -hmm. Hercules, his spirit, his pride, his strength, his, all of his everything, right? That's a great story. But the need to just insert Washington and, oh, Hercules, George Washington depended on Hercules and Hercules, re no, he, he really respected Hercules. No, he didn't. Cause I bet you Hercules couldn't wake up and say, you know what? Today I don't feel like cooking. I bet that wasn't an option. 
I know it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Right. So don't tell me nothing about respect between those two individuals. And again, Washington didn't even need to be in the story for there to be a great story about Chef Hercules. And I think that's the difference is the framing of the story of Hercules because in one hand, the way it was framed was that he was um, the successful celebrity chef because he was a slave. And but they the, never tell what being a slave meant. Right. And then the other, con- that's what I mean. The context of it is he, he was these things because of his status, right? As a slave, mm-hmm. right? The other narrative would be that he was this amazing celebrity chef in spite of being a slave. And though the, 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 the difference between guy. those two is huge. And, and, and what it would mean to our children to read those two two narratives is is um is something even bigger than that um mickey i want to bring you back into the conversation just talk a little bit more about just you know as we we hear those numbers of of last year's publishing numbers of of the number of african-americans that publish books and you're a writer you're out here publishing stuff all the time um not necessarily for children but certainly uh you know getting narratives out that are written by people of color um through hood feminism what what can we do? How do, how do we frame this conversation and, and bring this fight into more light? Because I do um, hear, you know, when Allison and Edie talk about this fight going, being had in kid lit circles and in literature, literature circles for so long. Um, it, it's kind of this little dark secret of the publishing world that they don't even let get out. Um, I, I wouldn't even say it's exactly a secret. I mean, I've been having this fight. I write comics. I write sci-fi. I have a kid's thing that's in the works that may be coming out. We'll see. And one of the things that's been true throughout, and it's it's going to sound real cliche, but you know that whole twice as good to go half as far thing your granny told you? Yeah. Well, these days, it's twice as big of an audience mm. to get half the money. Wow. So one of the reasons you may notice me, Daniel, a few others kind of using social media in specific ways, aside from the fact that this is what we do anyway, is that when you go to the publisher with your book pitch, the numbers you have, when you go to your, an, a potential agent, when you go to a potential publisher, part of that process is what is your audience size already? What is your platform already? My Twitter metrics are something like 40,000 people. That means my audience reaches 8 million people. The conversation I will have with a major publishing house about a book I want to put out is going to be very different than the conversation someone with no social media presence and, and maybe not even a blog will have. You see what I'm saying? If they're a person of color, right? If they're a person of color. Right. I mean, well, for some white authors too, it depends because mm-hmm. there's a whole... Not just, you know, what you know, but who you know aspect of this that right. can't be overstated. But it is particularly true that I've seen white authors with much lower metrics, but maybe better connections, maybe went to the right schools, that kind of thing, getting places that it would be a little more difficult for someone else. I am atypical because I have the, the, the range, because I write in different genres, that an author of half a dozen books might have. Because I, but that's because I write nonfiction, I write comics, and I write short stories, and have published all three of those already. So, if you want to change the conversation with Scholastic or whatever to be someone like J.K. Rowling, who can shift the focus of publishing, these days, unfortunately, you have to come with an audience already, which is why we're seeing so many celebrity book deals and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And 
I wish I could tell you that I thought that that was, you know, easily achievable or fair or whatever, but it's also a question of really being more responsible. You know, my grandmother used to say, all fast money ain't good money. Right. And I feel like, particularly for the illustrator and the author here, this was fast money. It wasn't necessarily good money. Mm. Um, but, you know, people get so excited about being able to publish that then they're afraid to risk that deal by pushing back. Or, frankly, judging by the author's write-up, she was so caught up in the history that more than likely when they said, well, you know, we want to focus on Washington because it ties into the president. She said, okay. And didn't necessarily think critically about what actually happened to Hercules, because unfortunately she will have imbibed the same message. A lot of people have that the individual slaves didn't matter as much as the people they served. Right. Mm. And also her, her, this idea of taking the narrative from, from those that were the enslavers, you know, Mm -hmm. any historical documents and any writings that she would have been using for this story didn't, all the authors of it wouldn't have given a shit about what Hercules felt or how he was feeling or the real uh, reality of his life. Why would they? He was property. He was a thing. So there's no context to historical, um, narrative that you can pull that would make me believe that. And I think that that, is where I challenge her point of anybody can tell the story because a black person telling that story would know that mm-hmm. they yeah, would think about those things. You know, what really bothers me. And it's it, it like, even when you look at say hi- historical accounts, right? Where the, you know, the, the person speaking is a former slave. They're operating off of, generate like decades of trauma by the time you've interviewed them so yeah sure master probably was a good person master probably was relatively nice considering you were his property Mm. like that's not that doesn't excuse it like yeah sure some slaves were some slaves smiled slaves smiled jumped sang danced that doesn't fucking detract we suddenly act like well i was gonna say we suddenly act like we don't know the stockholm syndrome exists right well, yeah, exactly. or that there weren't consequences to not smiling. Let's, you know, let's let's call yeah. a thing a thing. Let's be real. Like you could get in trouble for not acting like you were happy serving. Like that's not something you were supposed to be grateful. You were supposed to be subservient and 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 outwardly not show any of your emotions. It's all, and it's something that holds over in our communities to today. This notion of us not being able to be emotional and the baggage that comes along with that. What our society has deemed as angry or bitter or a confrontational or all of the things that come along with any emotion that black people show. We draw, we can draw it directly back to slavery in this country where our emotions were not our own. You know, one thing that really saddens me with this is when you look at this book, if this had been written for older children and it had been a complete story of Hercules, it could have led to an honest lesson on enslavement. Mm. Children could have actually learned something with this book, you know, because listening to the conversation and thinking about how rare it is in this country in classrooms to actually talk about enslavement so that we can begin to move beyond it just doesn't happen. And this, this book just... It missed a golden opportunity. Yeah. And, and then to have the gall to put this phrase of, oh, we're starting the conversation. Man, fuck your conversation. Don't, don't harm black people and then claim that you're starting a conversation. Nobody needs you to right, start that because conversation. Because you didn't start a conversation. You didn't start like, shit. You did not. So mm-hmm. like, 
miss me with all of that because you didn't do that at all. What you did was you tried to control the conversation. Yes. And you yes. tried to look like the hero in the conversation. But really, you didn't start a conversation because, again, it could have been a great story. Listen, I want to know about Chef Hercules. I, I've never heard of Chef Hercules. I'm like, that is great. That's listen. I'm, I work in a school right now that is full of third and fourth graders, uh, mostly black boys. Okay, and I'm telling you the the struggle and the fight to get them reading. It's a daily battle. You know why? They don't want to read Junie D. Jones. Mm-hmm. They don't want to read about Ramona Quimby. Now mm-hmm. the little black girls, they'll read about Ramona. They'll read about uh, you know uh, Junie B. But the little black boys, it, look, there's a book in there with Jackie Robinson in that. That listen, I can't. If I had a million copies, I wouldn't have enough. They want to see themselves. They want to see themselves. Period. Mm-hmm. Miss the everyday Miss Beeren, can you bring another book that got? Uh, 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 I want you to bring me a book with a, a black boy in it, with a black boy whose uh, daddy is in prison. I mean, like, they want to hear these stories, mm. right? And I'm like, they're missing it. Like, people are missing it all together. And again, a book like this could have really been a great piece of literature for teachers to put in their classroom libraries, for teachers to, I mean, it just, mm-hmm. they just missed it on so many levels. And well, it's, it's, well, they never considered their audience. Right. This is this is what happens when, as an author, well, maybe you never they do consider, consider their audience. They mm. consider that, that, that. I was going to say this is the problem. They think their audience is white kids only. They are not. Oh, yeah. yeah. They have their own hype. Black I can I can rewrite it for you right now. So this is Allison. I can rewrite it for you right now for how this book could have played out very very well. Okay, so, but here's right. so wait wait hold on. If you can rewrite the book, I'm gonna I'm gonna make this offer. If you think you can knock out a script, I'm married to an artist. And I have connections both at Scholastic and at Candlewick. Want to make it happen? That is. Here's what I want to offer. I want, no, I want to offer this as, like, this is the teachable moment. This is, if you really wanted to honor Hercules and you really wanted to make this a story that, um, Children of color, particularly African-American children, could pick up and the people who surround them could pick up and it would really do justice to this story. So those of you who've read the book know that since it's around Hercules needing to bake the birthday cake and he could not, you know, he didn't have any sugar. Right? How do you bake a cake with sugar? Um, let's, let's pull it off. Right? So in, in two sentences, Hercules one year figures out how to bake a birthday cake for George Washington. The very next year, after he has run away and liberated himself, he figures out how to bake a birthday cake for himself. Mm. Boom. Right? So it can be done. <laughs> like, you can take stories. And, um, again, this is a not-so-shameless plug um, for Teaching for Change. We actually have a list of titles that we recommend with books to talk about slavery. Now, there's some other questions that have come up in this that, I don't know how much longer we have on this podcast. We got but, time. Um, you know, there, there's some questions because, you know, what do teachers know really about this subject? A lot of teachers shy away from it because they don't feel like they can handle it. And this book is marketed as geared towards ages three through eight. Now, I have a two-year-old, and I have, you know, I work in, in um, elementary school. And to have this conversation with three-year-olds, I mean, you really, really have to think about what are the messages that you're trying to, share what is age appropriate and uh you know teaching for change we to kind of also bring it full circle 
we're talking about you know the reclaim MLK. That's how we started the the um, the show today. We're talking about reclaim MLK. Well, we also need to reclaim Black History and Black History Month. Mm. And one way to do that is instead of Black History Month being when we do you know the obli- the obligatory um, Black History Month assembly that's done at every school everywhere. What if Black History Month was the time when teachers actually got the chance to think and reflect about what do they know, what are they teaching, how are we teaching about King, how are we teaching about slavery, what are our black children and our children who are non-black learning about this? And the publishing industry needs to do the same. There needs to be some critical conversation because a lot of people have been miseducated themselves and then feel uncomfortable having the conversations that need to be had that we're and some of the questions we're starting to bring up today. So I wanted to also throw that out for the education realm, that not every teacher feels comfortable even talking about slavery, much less the civil rights movement, um, and that this, these conversations need to start happening, and this needs to be a point that we push however and whenever we can um, about what's happening in education, what's happening in publishing, because the two are linked. That's where we are. Mm-hmm. Our, so- our young children are learning, but the two are linked, and they need to be pushed in both areas. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, so one of the things that I do every year, yeah, one of the things I do every year is a public history project for people who maybe don't have that background. Um, I've done things like historic POC, making sure we use images, that kind of thing. So one of the things that I, I want people to kind of push, particularly this year, and I'm going to make a big bunch of posts and stuff about this in the next week or so, is finding parts of history time periods they don't know about, because we tend to get hung up on the idea that black history was you know, slavery, or Black History in America was slavery, then freedom, then Martin Luther King, and now we're here. Right. And we skip all of this stuff in between. Mm-hmm. So one of the things, that, you know, we did a lot of stuff about the 30s and 40s and media imagery last year, and I kind of want people this year to really look at what do I know versus what do I think I know. Mm. Let me find someone not affiliated with the civil rights movement and learn about them. Let me go and talk to my elders about people they knew, things they lived through, things like that. That's one of the things I want to encourage people to do this year. Because one of the things that I'm finding, since I've been doing these public history projects, and I have a lot of conversations around this stuff, is that people only have to take history K through 12. Well, what we teach in K through 12 is pretty much the sanitized version that doesn't challenge anything about America the Great and that myth. It's not till you get to college and not till you get past those maybe a couple of required classes at the beginning of college that you started to talk about what actually happened. So if that wasn't your focus, you did math, you did science, you did English, things like that, you may never have learned any more history than slavery, Reconstruction, Martin Luther King came, we all free now. That's not actually our history, but we think it is. We right. think we know. Right. But also, I, I stand by my offer. Yeah, I oh, stand yeah. by now my offer. Now we have Obama offer. now, yeah. Um, I do, however, have to get going because this has been 90 minutes and I have a deadline tomorrow morning. No problem. Um, <laughs> so I should I should maybe finish writing that thing that's due in a few hours. Yeah, that's a good thing to do. <laughs> that's uh, important. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Thanks thanks for joining us. And for, before you leave, just tell everyone where they can find you and, and, uh, and follow you and all that good stuff. I am Carnithia, K-A-R-N-Y-T-H-I-A on Twitter. 
I am MickeyKindle.com and HoodFeminism.com, and I write in, oh my God, so many places now, um, Washington Post, I've written for Time, Essence, Ebony, The Guardian. She everywhere. Yeah, I've written a lot of places. I also write uh, short fiction, and I have my first comic came out a couple months ago with Dynamite as part of the Swords of Sorrow series, and it's about to be out in reprints. So you should totally pick that up. Um, black girls are taking over comics, y'all. Yes. Because here's the other kicker. You know what our kids are reading? Even if they're not reading traditional books, they are reading comic books. Yeah, they are. I was about to say, graphic novels graphic and comics, novels and it comics. is everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, which right. is funny, another way of, of looking at how it's so easy to uh, bring people of color into futuristic tales, but so difficult to bring them into our history uh, and stories about us uh, in the past. It's interesting. Thanks so much, Mickey, for joining us. Well, um, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. It was nice to meet you all. Talk to you later. Talk to you soon. Bye. Nice meeting you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You know, when we were talking about other narratives that could be added into the mix, I, I, one of my favorite books I've read in the last couple of years um, is Isabella Wilkerson's uh, Warmth of Other Sons. And I imagine each of the stories that she tells, obviously there's lots of, um, you know, uh, data that's in the book as well, but she has four individuals. She, she follows through their migration from the South to either West or the Northeast or the Midwest. And I imagine each of those stories would make such an amazing, amazing children's book to talk about, um, their journey from where they were, why they left, what, what their journey was like, how their lives were shaped, um, by this change, um, in, in, um, location and how, um, you know, from that book, I, I, it really spoke to the resilience of our people, not in a condescending or cliche way, but in a real tangible way about things that were given up and, and things that were gained and, and how, how their lives in, unfolded in such a real way. And those are the kinds of stories that I think should be told. Uh, and that, that, that's what I hope. I hope these conversations continue so that more people can have them and, and do that. So Ronnie, you touched a little bit on kind of, pushing Scholastic further uh, than the tepid uh, pulling of this book because obviously, you know, the book made it through uh, pitch to uh, editing, through illustration, through the marketing process and actually to print and on bookshelves uh, only to be pulled when when those of us here on the call and many others um, decided to, to make uh, it a big deal. Even though, as we've noted, they clearly knew it was going to be one um, and an issue filled. So talk a little bit about, um, you know, targeting Scholastic because they have such a, you know, and, and the more I look into it, a disturbing amount of access to our children in and with little oversight, really none whatsoever. I mean... I didn't realize how the more I research I do and the more teachers and, and administrators I talk to, the more disturbed I get. Every day someone tells me something else and I'm like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. Yeah, they, listen, they have the market cornered in so many ways. They literally have their hands on the necks of so many schools. They make leveled readers. They do the kindergarten package for HISD, Houston Independent School District, which is huge. I think maybe the fourth largest in the nation. I mean, like... What they do for schools and in school, I mean, yes, the book fair is is one of their big things, but so many other things as far as publishing, right, and who they are uh, in the publishing world. Um, I mean, they're a giant. I mean, they literally are a giant. Now, on the one hand, it, it makes me just, like, cheer for people, like, people on this call who really um, – 
can bring down Goliath, you know, <laughs> not that their company is going bankrupt by any means, but the fact that they have to listen. Like for me, that's always the part where I tell people, listen, we, we don't even really know our power, right? Um, <clears throat> but, but part of power is also knowing that there's going to be some sacrifices. And I said this in one of my videos, you know, I've gotten so many emails from people going, well, you know, the Scholastic Book Fair gives our school $3,000 every year and we use that for blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, well, sorry, but right is right. <laughs> and they, they wanted to lock our children. And so because of that, yeah, I don't think they should have access to our kids. Um, and so, and like you said, the more and more teachers I talk to, the more I hear, oh, okay, well, they're the people that provide us with the disc every year. And they also give us this, and I'm like, good Lord. <laughs> Dang, Scholastic, you, yeah, you got yeah, a long on the, hand. And on the back end, they, don't they control most of the um, the testing, <laughs> the standardized testing? So they, I don't know I mean, that that's Scholastic. Yeah, they don't have, that's, that's not here in Texas. Pearson? Yeah, Pearson. Yeah, that's Pearson. Yeah, Pearson. Yeah, Pearson. Yeah, Pearson. Yeah, Pearson. You're right. That's right. Um, let me. But, this is awesome. Let me add in real quick to um, one of the victories that so the victory that Lisa Teaching for Change was involved in before this um, took much more time. But you know, Scholastic got its hands literally dirty. They put out a curriculum for fourth grade about coal that was literally funded by the coal industry. And didn't mention anything about the impact on the environment. No uh, mention of coal as being the dirtiest form of energy, the residual wow. impact that has on communities. And Scholastic put this out for free to fourth grade classrooms across the nation. And so it was a combined effort of um, our friends at uh, Rethinking Schools actually got their hands on it um, and were able to... Um, get information that there was a direct link, that the coal industry had funded it and Scholastic put it out. And, wow. uh, yeah, so they, they, they by no means have their hands clean when it comes to intent, when it comes to, you know, them essentially exerting themselves as, as almost a monopoly in um, school. So we do have to target them. They are a specific target, tar uh, educated target when it comes to education and when it comes to um, publishing. So if anybody, Scholastic, you know, Random House, the major publishers, but yes, they have to be held to an extremely high standard and we should absolutely take this victory um, and use it to propel us forward to make sure they know that we are keeping a close eye because yeah. they cannot claim innocence by, by any standard and we know that they are a market-driven entity. We are in a capitalist environment, and Scholastic mm -hmm. is capitalism making its way into schools. Yeah, so. and Scholastic is not just an American schools. They are a global publisher. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and I and I, and I it, it starts like I'm afraid to dig much further. I like have this vision of me coming across some document that shows them behind the scenes, you know trying to ensure schools don't get funding so they're further de dependent on them and I, I'm, I'm not a huge conspiracy theorist but I do see um, the hand of capitalism in our government and in our schools in such a huge way that it's not beyond the realm of this seeming that that seeming to make sense because no, the, the more de the more dependent the schools are on, on the money from Scholastic the more control that they're going to have and certainly have an unwillingness I mean uh, and this was not just 
I mean, some some teachers uh, in response to, to Ronnie and, and my call to kind of really stop these school fairs until we, these book fairs until we have some sort of um, transparency with regard to w- the books that they're putting out and, and increasing the amount of quality representation of people of color in them uh, for our children. Some teachers were like, listen, this is the situation and it's, it's, it's going to be difficult for us to not have this revenue. And so we're going to have to figure out a way to do this. But some people were, I mean, angry, like full on ready to, to defend them and, Mm -hmm. and fight for them. And, and, you know, and when I see that, it tells me that this is, um, a level of penetration that I had no clue was even there. So it's, it's been very eye opening this last week, just kind of sorting through all of that. So I guess my next question would be, you know, what, what do, what do each of you see as, as next steps? And, and then some longer term goals. We'll start with next steps first. And, and, um, Allison, I'll start with you and just see, you know, what do you think? Where do we go from here? You know, we, we've had this small victory, um, such that it was, although it was shaped by, um, the oppressor in this case. Um, but it was, it is good to not have this book out there. I'll say that. Um, what, what, what do you see next in this fight for, um, you know, increased, um, representation and quality uh, depictions of people of color in children's literature. So, um, in, in, ter- in terms of what the industry needs to do, I'm going to um, defer to some colleagues. Um, you know, there's a review process that happens at publishers. Again, how this book made it through, who mm. was in that review process, who they reached out to outside of Scholastic, um, and how this book still managed to be published is really a big question, uh, much less defended. But um, in terms of what we need to do in terms of organizing, um, I think that, you know, we need to continue to write and use the platforms that we have. Social media and, um, you know, our websites and blogs have really provided a great forum for us to connect and to share ideas um, so, you know, Edith is certainly part of a network of uh, an informal, both formal and informal network of folks who are, you know, keeping a close eye on what is being published. Again, what children read matters, what they learn matters. Um, Teaching for Change, we're actually working on trying to um, bring together a place where there are, uh, a, there's a catalog of children's book reviews so that if people are looking at a book, they can have a place to go to say, you know, well, what are some of the thoughts and other considerations? Because even some of the good books that get published, you know, we still have some notes about them or things that people, um, you know, are, are, who are teaching or who are going to be sharing them with young children really should consider if they're going to share the, the book. So we have to continue to, um, you know, be the watchguards. Um, we're fighting for black lives on all fronts, and children's literature is no different. So... Um, certainly those of us who know how to apply that critical lens to children's literature um, are going to continue to do that. Um, and I think this is going to be a great wake-up call for the wider movement, not just Black Lives Matter, but anyone who cares what children are learning mm. and about the future of this nation. We have to be paying attention to what they read, what they learn, any forms of media, and the children's literature is, is no different. So... Um, I think, really, we have to take this and run. You know, Scholastic should take a message from us, and I think we should take a message from this as well. And anyone who's not involved in children's literature and education, 
um, just know that there there are people out there and they looped into what to the conversation. You're you're relevant. Excellent. Um, Edie, I'll, I'll turn it to you. Same same question about where where we go from here. Um, after the fine dessert, you know, I, I was ready to to move on and and what will we do next? But this one, I don't know what has been so different about this battle. It has been hard to regroup after this. Um, there. And maybe just had to do with the way Scholastic just so suddenly pulled the book. And what was that? What you know, trying to figure out what that was, what what that was about. But I, I think in in moving forward that we have to keep promoting and supporting authors of color, mm. the ones who have been published. We have got to request, demand their books. Um, we've got to let parents know if you go into a library, if you go into a bookstore and you don't see books by authors of color, ask for them. Mm. Um, libraries can purchase books for their users. Most can. Um, you can also request books in your bookstores. And if they're not going to purchase them, go elsewhere. Um, we've got to support them because if their books aren't selling, they're not going to be able to get anything else published, especially those those first year authors. Their their books have to sell in order for them to be able to continue publishing. Um, after this battle, it becomes even more clear that we need to connect with educators. Um, we need to get books in their hands for their students. Um, one thing I've done personally is I've adopted a first grade classroom. Um, I had a fourth grade classroom before the, the teacher moved. I, I changed to first grade this year. And, and that's critical in Indiana because if you don't pass a third grade reading test, you don't pass a third grade. It, we want to get books close to young people. We want them not just have to go to a library to get books, but you need books in your homes. You need books in the classrooms. The closer they are to the young people, the more likely they will be to read. So I've adopted this classroom. I buy books for them, and I make sure that there is an ample supply of diverse literature in what they're reading. But educators need to know that, you know, they swear I can't find these books. Where are these books? They need to know how to find books by authors of color that feature children of color, that have diverse characters, that have LGBTQ characters in them. They need to have those um, incorporated in their lessons and in the classrooms for, for children to be able to find them. We need to look at some options here. We need to maybe give up this traditional route that we've been following. Um, there are internships available. Um, United Negro College Fund just just announced one that they have for um, college students at HBCUs to get into major publishing houses and get a background working in publishing. There's another horrible thing that Penguin has just done. They are um, changing their requirements to hire people who do not have a bachelor's degree to work at Penguin. Hmm. Now, what does this say to people who have been qualified to work at Penguin who have not been able to get hired because they don't have the connections? So they're going to hire people who are less qualified. Horrible. I, I just I hope that they, they change that. And what's their reasoning for that? Um, this is what they're doing to address diversity. So that they can bring in more minorities. And, and I guess what they're saying is, um, minorities aren't, they don't have degrees. And so if we get rid of this requirement, then we'll start hiring minorities. And 
that's not the problem. Marginalized people have degrees. You, you're not seeing us. You're not hearing us. We're there. They've been, for years, we've been trying to get jobs there. We need to look at self-publishing. Mm. There are many libraries that have programs, that have printing presses right inside the library. Let's give voice to people in our communities. Let's publish and sell and support our own books. If the publishing companies are not going to do it for us, we can do it ourselves. And, I mean, think about the, the amount of people that just ebooks allow for. Yes. Just see it, like cheap, easy dissemination of, of libraries. Right. Again, you know, that, that's that part of, I think part of this fight ha- has to involve technology. It has to involve us using this amazing fucking technology we've, we've come up with in the internet. And actually make change. <laughs> yes. You know, th- th- yeah. there's, we don't have to sell books. We don't have to have books the way we have them. Right. But I do We're think socialized that... to even read on a fucking paper, piece of paper. Right. But I do think that this has just been my experience is that I think that where we do have a, a bit of leverage with Scholastic is that, you know, of all the different genres and all the different target audiences of books, children are still the ones that need physical things to hold yes, and physical absolutely. things to read. And so we see this is probably the piece of their, their empire, so to speak, that they haven't seen diminishing unlike, um, you know, books targeted at adults where maybe their margins aren't as great because people are getting eBooks or using audible or whatever else they might be using it for. Um, and it's where why we see them so heavy in these book fairs because it's clear it's a huge revenue stream for them and um i think self-publishing is a really great great piece to kind of bring that in i think um certainly educating educators about um what's available and also parents as well you know it's it's a lot out there and i think that lamentably um as funding for our schools have diminished, um, our dependency on them to do their jobs well hasn't. And it's, it's, it's an unfortunate situation where our, our public schools are consistently being defunded and, and the needs that we need to get from them have not decreased at all, nor should they. Um, and so, so it, it's, it's a precarious position. And then that's what allows a company like Scholastic to fill a void that's there. Um, and it's difficult to pull them out of the, out of that void because we become dependent on them. Um, Ronnie, how about you next steps? Yeah, I think some of our next steps, I mean, the, the first thing is to continue to hold these corporations, um, feet to the fire, um, and to sort of never, Never for one second believe that <laughs> we, that our voices don't matter, um, because, you know, we keep proving that over and over. And what they hate is negative PR and all that, right? So that's the first thing is to, and, and just to keep your eyes, our eyes peeled, right? So that as books come out, um, I have one of my professors is really active in, in children and young adult and YA lit. So she gets book reviews all the time and, you know, she's like, listen, I'm going to be looking now, you know, for those types of things, right? Um, so that's the other part. And I think, you know, really sort of getting in that place, I mean, hearing those numbers about the the number of black authors who published children's books in, in 2015, I mean, that is troubling. I mean, that, I mean, troubling, like, makes my heart hurt um, 
that because I know so many brilliant writers, right, and and and, and illustrators, and the fact that books by black people about black people aren't getting in front of our children is is extremely problematic. So I, I think it's just you know I, I hate to say this, but <laughs> being woke <laughs> and, and sort of always being on the forefront of these things, and then like you're saying, you know, I I would love to see sort of a list of the. <laughs> the wrongs of Scholastic. So hearing about their whole coal curriculum, we talked about that in one of my classes last semester, I believe. Um, and then, of course, hearing about this particular book. And, and those are just two things. There have got to be more, right? And I feel like, you know, I really wish I, I needed to find a good investigative journalist, somebody, you know, a good college student who wants to dig around. I mean, I'm sure that Scholastic has a long list of sins and those kinds of things. I'm like, let's expose them for, for real who they are. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, in the McGraw Hill situation, it was exposing McGraw Hill, but it was also exposing, um, sort of the state board of education here in Texas. Mm -hmm. And so that's the next level of fighting that, that I'm sort of doing right now is like, Look at what the state board is doing. Look at the measures they're not letting pass. Look how partisan they are, right? And so that's the other thing I think with Scholastic is, okay, let's talk about all the things they've done wrong. Let's look at the, what they've done in the last five years. Because if they put out this trashy coal curriculum and they put out this, this trashy Happy Birthday Mr. Watterson book, surely there's more. So let's see. Let's like, hey, let me see their slip, right? Let's lift the whole dress up. Let me see. Like, let's, let's see. And then I think you get people who hopefully would – be less willing to go to bat, like you know you were saying for Scholastic, because I'm with you, Leslie. The amount of people who are like, "But we use that money for field trips. That's the money we use to get buses." And I'm like, "Okay, all right." <laughs> so, so yeah, I'm I'm real big on just sort of making sure that it hurts corporations. I mean, it that you know because they perpetuate a system. They really do. Yeah, for sure. They perpetuate a system. And, you know, I did some cursory. I had, had some folks, um, some, some white folks I like to put to work sometimes, uh, do some research, um, kind of digging into the board of directors for, uh, for Scholastic. And it was an interesting little, you know, sojourn. There's one black person on their board, one. Um, a good number of them have been on the board since 1974. Oh. Um, very few women. So I, I really started looking at it and really thinking about the people that are making these decisions at a company that has so much um, pull in our school systems and who are these people and do I really think that a white man that's been on a board since 1974 would think anything was wrong with this book? Fuck no, he's not going to think anything's wrong with this book. This book would look perfectly fine to him. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's definitely a lot there that to dig into and to get into. And this is a, this is a long-term, uh, conversation. And, and one thing I'm glad about that happened, and this is not anything that a conversation they started, but it has, um, sparked some interest and, uh, wider discussion about, um, this issue of children's literature and, and portrayals. And I love that we, we had this conversation, you know, we, we pinged into, um, specifically, um, reading levels for black children and how their depictions in children's books affect that, um, which is huge. I mean, representation matters. We can't say it enough. We say it all the time when we see, um, you know, somebody dressed for Halloween, like, um, 
you know, John Boyega in Star Wars. That's huge. That's something that, that means that that person saw themselves on the screen and was, was excited by that and, and, and engaged with that. And what, what in this book is, is a black child supposed to connect to? And that's really where I came full circle when I really, when I read the book, I really sat there thinking, what, I don't connect to any of it. And I put myself in my younger, in my younger mindset. And there's not a single thing in that book that would make me think, ooh, there, there, there's something for me to, to connect to. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, what I hated about the book and because I remember these kinds of things growing up in school and I went to a predominantly white school and I remember we read books and stories where of course black people were the slaves and there was never a story about the slaves fighting back or there was never that right um and I remember feeling embarrassed I remember Mm. feeling less than you know and just looking around like okay this is weird and and so that's what the book made me think of initially was like when a kid sees this book like (laughs) what what little black girl is gonna read this and be like oh yeah uh that i mean yeah no they're definitely not absolutely not well i thank all of you for joining us for this great conversation i know it's just one of many but i as soon as we all started kind of connecting on on this topic i thought we definitely have to have a podcast about it because it's a lot of pieces to pull together um and as as we've all said this is just um not even the beginning but i would say the middle of or the end of the beginning of the fight because we have a lot more to go um, in terms of bringing this uh, wider and and really um, as Ronnie mentioned um, bringing some truth into the situation especially with regard to Scholastic um, due to their their you know kind of unprecedented access to our children that they have right now it's really uh, mind-boggling to me and I'm not a mom so it was but I remember those bringing that that scholastic book fair you know flyer home and having combed through it and circled the books that I wanted and all of those things I never had a book that that was about somebody like me that Mm -hmm. looked like me that talked like me that had a background like me um but I still, you know, my mom still had to write that check every year or twice a year whenever they <laughs> came, you know, because I didn't want to not have a book. And I was a voracious reader. I loved reading. Um, but, you know, it was always about imagining a different place, but not one that looked like me. So I think that this is this is a huge opportunity um, for us to get involved. Um, and as I always say, you know, I think... This year, we're going to see, you know, and in, in, in some of the policy piece that I read, you know, this this fight for to ensure that Black Lives Matter goes way beyond police brutality. While that is definitely a dire situation and one that requires um, attention immediately because we're talking about life and death measures. But the idea of Black Lives Mattering goes well beyond that. Um, it goes to the heart of the value of our lives, the quality of our lives, that they're worth living, that our dreams are worth dreaming, that our goals are worth achieving, and that there aren't impediments to, to those things being done. So this is a huge piece of that puzzle and um, ensuring that our, our children uh, see themselves from a young age in a positive light because um, that, of course, will allow them to see themselves um living positive lives. So with that, um, Allison, please tell folks where they can follow you and find you online so they can connect with you outside of here. Absolutely. Um, I'm on Twitter, Allison, two L's and a Y, 
uh, Kreiner Brown, at Allie Kreiner Brown. Um, follow Teaching for Change. We are at Teaching Change, at TSC Book, and online at teachingforchange.org. Our mission is building social justice starting in the classroom. Uh, you can also find through our web store. We are at now more than 50 book lists of um, recommended titles that we have carefully screened for parents and for educators um, on books from Palestine to Africa uh, to teaching about slavery um, and other uh, topics so that uh, teachers and parents can really bring social justice books and titles and stories that reflect um, students and families of color and marginalized people and communities into their classrooms and homes. So teachingforchange.org and thank you so much, Leslie, for this opportunity. No, thank you so much for being here. Um, Edie, tell tell everyone where they can find you. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Crazy Quilts. And from there, um, you can find a link to my blog called Crazy Quilt Edie. Um, on my blog, um, you'll find many book reviews, mainly for young adult books. I'm getting it more into picture books and books for younger readers because I'm collecting those books on my library now. Um, you will find a list of books for children, probably eight and over. Um, I've been keeping those every year since 2006. So if you are struggling to find books for children of color or Native American children, you can find those located on my blog. Um, I want to thank you very much for this opportunity. I am so appreciative of this attention to this issue in children's literature. Hopefully, working together, we can start making a change for our children because their lives do matter. Absolutely. And Ronnie, where can folks uh, follow and find you? Uh, I am on Instagram and Twitter at Ronnie, R-O-N-I underscore Dean, D-E-A-N. And then, of course, I'm on Facebook at Ronnie Dean Buren. Um, and I'm there all the time, probably more than I should be because <laughs> I should be doing my research. But <laughs> I'm there all the time. <laughs> yeah, she has great videos on there. So if you can catch her live, it's even better. Um, you can follow Ricky occasionally on Twitter at A-U-A-D-O-T org. Almost always on Facebook backslash AUA Movement, and you can go to their website auamovement.org, and you can also download their app, the Americans United Again app, via Google Play or via any Android device. Oh, I did it so good that time, Ricky. Did. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you can follow me on the Twitter at Leslie Mac. That's M A C. And you can um, follow Ferguson Response at Ferguson R E S P. Uh, and I will be heading to Flint on Sunday. So our next episode will be uh, focusing on Flint. We're going to get a couple people together that are on the ground there and also my reflections for my trip and talk a little bit more about um, uh, just state failures and how they are affecting people of color in such harmful ways. Final thoughts, Ricky. Um, honestly, it's, this has been an amazing discussion. Um, I, a lot of people don't really think about like how, just how racism and white supremacy plants itself in children. Mm. So early, like, you know, we know by the time you're fucking eight whether or not you're going to be racist is a general rule. Like, 
we have to kind of have this have this discussion. What the fuck are they being taught that's making them <laughs> this racist? What are black children being taught and shown that's making them so hate themselves and 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 not value themselves? You know, when you tell when you tell a child over and over in literature and education and school and on TV that they don't matter and you show them they don't matter, how do you think they react? Hmm. Yes. I don't even have any final thoughts. I just thank everyone for joining us. I'm Mickey as well, who had to leave early. Um, for being here, I thank all of you for lifting up um, the this important topic and continuing to fight. I want to give a, um, another shout out also to Debbie Reese, who has an amazing page curating all of the different articles um, and posts related to... Um, uh, birthday cake for George Washington. If you'd like to get the screenshots of the book, just let me know. I'll send them to you. And um, since apparently you can't find it anywhere, but I have it on my Kindle, so it's okay. Um, and we will see you guys next time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.